0: Welcome to the Business of Primary Care podcast, where we discuss the latest news, trends, and practices in primary care. Our community is full of healthcare's best. From physicians to CEOs, you will hear from brilliant minds on topics ranging from value-based care to the latest in healthcare tech. On today's episode, we talk about the underutilization of pharmacists in primary care. The ongoing switch to an outcome-based reimbursement model, and the need for collaboration and less silos in healthcare. Our host for today's discussion is Katila Farley. Katila is an experienced healthcare executive. As a registered nurse, her professional experience includes 18 plus years in healthcare, with over 15 plus years in healthcare management. She is certified in value-based care and skilled in ACO, risk, care coordination, and hair transitions and all aspects of managing and growing a medical practice both small and large. And as you'll find in this season, she's full of insight, passion, and kindness. Today we welcome Dr. Kevin Bond, the Chief Medical Officer of Walgreens, and Dr. Clive Fields, the co-founder and chief medical officer of Village MD. To begin the discussion, our guests share a little bit about the partnership of Village MD and Walgreens. Let's dive in.
1: So it's interesting. So the the topic of the show, business of primary care. And I I think one of the things that physicians have forgotten is that we are held to the same standards as many other businesses, which is meeting the needs of our customers, our consumers, our patients. And one of the things that I'm most excited about in the collaboration with, with Walgreens is the ability to bring primary care to the most convenient and accessible places in the country. Places where people want to receive care, where they work, where they live, where they play, as opposed to the 18 story of a downtown high rise in the middle of a medical center where parking sometimes costs more than the copay at their, that their insurance requires. So when we talk about the business of, of health care, um, I think the collaboration between Village Medical, which is a comprehensive primary care organization committed to driving improved quality outcomes at a lower cost, in partnership with Walgreens, is really one of the first national scalable efforts to meet the needs of patients where they are, instead of asking patients to come to where we are. And I think that's why this this business ultimately will pr- prove to be one of the most successful ventures in the delivery of
2: comprehensive primary care. Well, I think Clive did an exceptionally good job of nailing that. Um, I have to say, he and I have been working together here for a few years, so this would not be a normal interaction if we were not to tease one another. But I think that's exactly right. We spend a lot of our time thinking about how to drive care into medically underserved areas. That, for for many, has been somewhat of an abstract concept. Interestingly, in terms of the role Walgreens could play in that, of course, everyone knows us as a retail pharmacy. You know, I think the stat is that you know eighty percent of Americans live within five miles. Of a of a Walgreens, but but the truth is that the pandemic has helped us remove some of the mystery, and and uh, what was previously abstract has become more obvious. And that is that we can drive care into communities. Um, you know, we did that as we embedded testing, something we hadn't done previously, into communities across the country, uh, and then sort of expanded our our vaccine program. Um, where it really matters is when we when we combine our our services with primary care like we've done with Village MD. And and that's largely because I know both Clive and I are big believers in the synergy that comes from primary care and pharmacy. Sort of interesting, Clive, I was thinking about something you said to me, uh, which was, you know, I come from the hospital world. I'm an emergency physician. I spent most of my career uh, on the acute side of care, at least the hospital side of care. And the concept of a clinical pharmacist is well known in that space. But Clive, I remember you said to me, like, you know, not all primary care physicians, folks in the ambulatory space have that same construct. And, I, you know, it's funny. I, I know maybe I'm taking us off into a different space here, but um, that's interesting because my experience has been that anytime we embed pharmacy and pharmacists into the, in, into the care of patients we always drive better outcomes Uh, and so now I guess it's up to us to prove that in the ambulatory space as well. No I mean Kevin I think you're 100 percent right when
1: I trained it was common to have a clinical pharmacist on rounds to explain medication problems um, drug drug interactions that's almost unheard of in a primary care setting where the vast majority of medications are written in the first place. So the ability to, to bring together our primary care doctors co-located in the same piece of real estate, but in a very personal, privileged, and private fashion, but able to work in partnership with the pharmacists at Walgreens, I think is a differentiator. When I think about, and you've heard me say this before, I mean, the most common interaction with, uh, with the healthcare system that an American has. Is a primary care visit, and the most common intervention is the prescription of a pharmaceutical agent. So, being able to bring those two very common things together in a way that optimizes the result of both of those partners, I I think is part of the business model that ultimately drives and differentiates Village and Walgreens from from other primary care providers that don't have access to to the the clinical resources that your pharmacists bring and, and now bring to Village patients every day.
3: And just out of curiosity, because it, it really sounds to me like the pharmacist in the conversation streamlines care. Do you believe we're going to see this trend outside of, of just your partnership?
2: There's a lot of talk about the primary care crisis in this country and how we just can't meet the demand. And especially as we looked at medically underserved areas, like it just doesn't happen. And I think the thought that we might somehow fix that problem by training more primary care doctors or having more nurse practitioners or physician assistants is um is inaccurate. It's empty. You know, everything is a collective realization at a certain point where we all together at some point go, oh, there's an aha moment. You know, we're going to have to rethink this problem. And that is the C note I'm beginning to sense. These things take time, they don't happen overnight, especially in healthcare. But I think people are starting to recognize that we might have to deploy our resources in a way different than we do today. And that requires a tremendous amount of courage, which we can talk about that a little bit later. But we need to look at, you know, what are the resources that we have and how might we deploy them differently so that we can provide people with care? And I think maybe one of the most underutilized resources that we have in this country is our use of pharmacists. Uh, They are, um, aside from being embedded in community and and deeply connected to people, right, which is amazing and important, they are also exceptionally well-trained. And to have them exclusively dispense medications and work on things that are bureaucratic and don't lead to better patient outcomes is craziness. So I think there's a great opportunity here. And it comes just like when there's crisis comes opportunity. And the opportunity will be that we will begin to get rid of some of those bureaucratic roles that we play. We will dispense less directly and maybe centralize that process so that our pharmacists can can do things so that they can do things of high value, right, that only they can do and that they do exceptionally well. I think that they are very good they are the experts in medication and medication therapy management uh better than any doctor i've ever known in terms of understanding drug drug interaction understanding how to de prescribe something that physicians in general don't know how to do and to really make sure that people are on the most optimal medications but then there's so much more that we can do beyond medication therapy management and we intend to do all of that yeah, Katila, I, I couldn't agree more with Kevin. I'm thinking a little bit about your
1: question how did this happen in the first place? And, you know, we talk a lot about silos of healthcare, and primary care doctors are not immune to that. We created our own silo, as did our specialty colleagues and hospitals and, and our pharmacists. And as we move towards integrated clinical and economic outcomes, those silos are coming down. And the removal of those silos between pharmacists and primary care, I think, is just an absolute necessity. They should never have been siloed separately in the first place. And the fact now that we are tied together in terms of quality metrics, outcome metrics, patient satisfaction, drug medication adherence and compliance, things that primary care doctors assumed weren't their responsibility but are now on their clinical scorecard. And we're recognizing the need for help. And in all honesty, I think the pharmacists recognize that they need help, too, in making sure that their patients are taking medications that are prescribed at the appropriate dose at the appropriate time. So ultimately, this move to what many people people call value-based care, I like to think of as outcome-based reimbursement, has taken down the the barriers um, that kept everybody in their own economic business silo. And have us now working together much more as a team and certainly being able to team up with pharmacists like the experience I had as a trainee in a hospital is something that we continue to drive in the outpatient setting and and in all honesty we continue to find lots of clinical areas where pharmacists can be helpful in bringing their unique skill set to drive a different outcome.
0: Let's pause for a moment and give a little context on the history of the community pharmacy in America. The evolution of the industry and the way it has evolved can help us better understand how pharmacists are viewed today. Benjamin Urich and Emily Meggs published an article in the National Library of Medicine in 2019, and they divide the notable eras into four different periods. The Soda Fountain Era, the Lick, Stick, Pour, and More Era, the Pharmaceutical Care Era, and then present day, which is considered the post-pharmaceutical care era. So let's begin with the soda fountain era in the 1920s the pharmacy's business expanded to soda fountains and other goods for purchase because traditional prescription compounding and dispensing actually became a minor part of pharmacy operations even when drugs were dispensed the ethical standards at the time limited pharmacists engagement with the patients at all the 1922 american pharmaceutical association code of ethics stated that the pharmacist shouldn't discuss the therapeutic effect of a physician's prescription with any patron. So, in the 1920s, there was actually a crisis for pharmacists. They didn't know who they were and what their role was in the community. But this all changes in the lick-stick-poor-and-more era, which was from 1950 to 1979, when the level of education for pharmacists increases, and their responsibility as a result went from just dispensing medication to also include patient care services. This was a huge cultural shift that some argue is still persisting into the 21st century. It was also during this era that the first pharmaceutical center was created by Eugene White, and this was the place where customers were really replaced with patients. The change was also reflected in the 1969 revision to the Code of Ethics, which referred to a pharmacist's duty to his patient in the very first section. It says, quote, A pharmacist should hold the health and safety of patients to be a first consideration. He should render to each patient the full measure of his ability as an essential health practitioner. All right, let's jump to the 1980s, which we call the pharmaceutical care era. We witness another huge shift towards more patient care. We see the shift in definition of pharmaceutical care placed patient care at the center of pharmacy practice and achieving definite outcomes. Importantly, in 1990, we also see the federal government require prescription counseling as a part of the Medicaid program. During this time, there were several studies conducted that proved that pharmacists could provide and be reimbursed for pharmaceutical care services, which would later be rebranded as Medication Therapy Management, MTM, in the 2000s. Additionally, during the 1990s, pharmacists began to give immunizations, which has proved to be critical in improving population health during the influenza pandemic and COVID-19. Despite the momentum that happened in the 90s, in the 2009 National Pharmacy Workforce Survey, delivered after the full implementation of Medicare Part D, they only found a slightly higher engagement in patient care services pharmacists only spent 8 to 11% of their time providing patient care services and 70 to 78% of their time dispensing. So that brings us to the current era. Though immunizations and patient care services have both increased in the 2010s, progress has been very slow. Thus the importance of the Walgreens and Village MD partnership. We're excited to see how they continue to evolve the role of the pharmacists in our communities. So let's dive back in. Kevin picks up on Clive's comment on the outcome-based reimbursement. Do good for people and get paid for it.
2: We hear so much about value-based care. It's almost become meaningless to people. Um, but it's a payment model, right? And a lot of people think of it somehow as a clinical model. It's really not a clinical model. It's a payment model. Uh, and it's one that focuses out on outcomes. Um, and, and that's something that is desperately important for what we're trying to do as we transition our pharmacists into that sort of new work, that high value work, because that doesn't work in a fee-for-service model. There's gotta be a payment model for us to be able to have our pharmacists go from you know dispensing medications. And when you think about pharmacy, like we are maybe the definition of fee-for-service, right? Like every action that we do, we get paid for, and that's usually around dispensing. And so I think, Clive, I really, um, like that that frame you know the out uh outcome based reimbursement because then we can decide you know where does it make sense for us to allocate money because we believe it's going to drive better outcomes i know clive and i both believe that uh the synergy here between primary care and and pharmacy matters a great deal Um, and so we get the freedom to a certain extent so it's you know it's risk you know people talk about risk programs you know i've heard others say and, and I'm afraid to attribute here, it's it's actually freedom that we're, we're looking for, right? It's not the risk of it, it's the freedom to be able to do the things that we know matter. And so that's where we're headed. I just wish we'd get there a lot faster.
1: It makes me think of some of the work that we're doing that are taking pharmacists out of the dispensing of medication business. And Kevin, I think about the readmission work. I mean, the fact that in this country, people over 65 are readmitted to the hospital one out of six times or one out of six patients within 30 days for the same or similar reason is a national disaster. And it's a medical catastrophe. And working with pharmacists, what we've been able to show is that one of the most common reasons for that readmission are medication errors. People get discharged home and they take the medicines they took before they went to the hospital and they take the medicines they got when they were in the hospital. Many times, medications now, the same medication looks different, can be a different color from a different generic manufacturer. And it is a leading cause of of readmissions and just confusion post-discharge from a hospital. Being able to work with some of Kevin's pharmacists and our own internal pharmacists at Village, we've been able to show a significant decrease in readmissions with what we call post-discharge medication reconciliation done over a virtual platform. So convenient for a patient, done by a professional, working, quote, at the top of their license and driving a different outcome. And and that's a, a classic example of work that couldn't be done by primary care doctors, couldn't only be done by pharmacists, but together in a partnership. Is driving a lower re- readmission rate for many times our our most fragile and
2: elderly patients. You know, Clive, that was my my aha moment um, ten years ago. I was chief medical officer of a hospital here in Boston, uh, and um, I was a chaired medica- uh utilization review. We sent these folks home thinking that we had a you know an ironclad plan that was going to be perfect, and more often than not when it failed, it failed around medication therapy management in some way, shape, or form. And so, you know, the journey maybe towards Walgreens is is maybe that was the beginning of it. I realized how powerful it was to get that right. And what's really interesting about it is that here, you know, look, anything we do in healthcare, it has to make sense from a a reimbursement point of view right like there's so many things we'd like to be able to do but we just can't make them work financially the beauty about what what clive is talking about specifically in these vulnerable moments of transitions of care is that you're doing the right thing for the person if you're able to decrease readmissions and you know what you're really saying on the flip side of that is people are getting better they're staying at home they're doing the things that we ought to be doing and so so, it almost, you can lead with that. You can lead with the clinical component and it gets backed up financially because you save a lot of money in the process. It's funny, Kevin, to me, you both know that this
1: as doctors, but there are very few products or services that you can receive where the higher the quality, the lower the cost. And healthcare is one of those. I mean, if you buy a higher quality car or refrigerator or suit, you pay more for it. But in healthcare, the higher the quality, the lower the cost. Because of the removal of redundant testing, unnecessary visits, drug drug interactions, unneeded procedures, all that kind of stuff that drives, unfortunately, some of the low quality results that we've, again, unfortunately gotten used to. Um, but in healthcare, driving higher quality drives lower costs. So working in coordination with pharmacists, as well as our other colleagues across the healthcare continuum, ultimately drives to higher quality and lower cost.
0: Let's take a minute to look at this messy shift to outcome-based reimbursements. As Clive and Kevin have been discussing on this episode, value-based care has almost lost its meaning due to its overuse and its extremely slow rollout in the industry. It's also intimidating to begin to understand practical ways to implement value-based care because it is such a huge shift in the way the majority of healthcare operates. So we wanna take a moment and point out that this partnership between Walgreens and Village MD is an excellent example of working towards a value-based care model, specifically some of the aspects detailed in a framework by authors Teesberg and Wallace. Though they outline a much more extreme shift, we see Village MD and Walgreens paving the way forward in delivering more integrated care at a clinic level. So let's take a look at it. Their framework begins with a health organization identifying a segment of patients who have a shared health need. For example, people with knee pain, or people with type 2 diabetes. When we segment, it allows for systems and routines to be coordinated most efficiently, and also outcomes to be tracked more accurately. After the segment is identified, Teesburg and Wallace dove into a specific ideal when it comes to the team of people providing care. They are a co-located, multidisciplinary team of providers who strategize together to deliver a comprehensive solution to those needs. For example, a clinic focused on migraine headaches may provide drug therapy, but also psychological counseling and physical therapy. Giving a multifaceted solution requires a dedicated team from many different disciplines working together to ensure great care and shared information. And we see this at a basic level in Walgreens and Village MD, as PCPs and pharmacists work in the same clinic together and drive better outcomes for their patients. After a comprehensive plan is conducted in this framework, Teesburg and Wallace pointed out that it is vital that the team measures the health outcomes of its care for each patient. This allows teams to know whether or not they are succeeding and where they need to make changes to improve care for that specific segment. And then lastly, as health outcomes improve with evidence, the team can serve more patients through expanded partnerships. We see how Clive and Kevin are focusing on working towards this within their partnership. As the conversation continues to unfold, you'll hear how they are finding solutions to specific problems and sharing those findings with the industry. And that leads us to Katila's next question on additional workflows.
3: The question I have for you is, what's your plan for
0: additional workflows?
3: Because I have a feeling you've got some. And how do you want to continue on this pathway? Because I think you're completely onto it. Yes, we've got to solve for how do practices that don't have a, a pharmacist partnership, like you said, or do practices need to seriously consider this is the way? So just thoughts on additional workflows, thoughts on um, path forward. I'd love to just kind of open that up
1: yeah i mean kevin i I hate to say this is a little bit back to the future right but when we trained pharmacists were running anticoagulation clinics they were managing insulin therapy they were doing many things that we've moved them away from as we move to an economic model that really supported them dispensing medications so when you talk about workflows I, i i think that they it's pretty much it's not unlimited But it's limited only by our imagination and our clinical capabilities and and the ability to work together in the same setting so that you're personally connected as well as virtually connected, connecting with patients, both in person and virtually, and doing it in a site that's convenient for patients to, to, to be at um, is, is an incredibly powerful combination. So when you talk about workflows, we we touched on medication reconciliation post discharge. I, I think if, if me and Kevin kind of work on that problem, problem for the next year. and and we drive readmissions in our population from 15% to 11%, we can kind of high five it and say that we actually contributed to a significant improvement in the way that healthcare is delivered in America, never mind the myriad of workflows that pharmacists are involved in now in the inpatient setting, which are moving to the outpatient setting, infusion centers, the administration of chemotherapy, the management of side effects. Those those are all things that our pharmacy colleagues are incredibly well trained to work with us side by side to drive a better result. Kevin, I hate taking away all all your ideas, Kevin, but I'll bet you've got some you've seen in in the hospitals and in the ERs that, that
2: we have not saying you know, we're not trying to work in a silo. I've, I think I speak on behalf of Clive here, as I often will. When you know, when we, I think it was back in the fall, we we're together talking about this. Someone asked Clive, I forget how they said it, Clive, like your competitors or something like that, and you're like, yeah, you know what? I don't think of them as our competitors. You know, they were talking about Oak, I guess, and Chen and uh, Iora and other models like that. And and you you said something like, Yeah, I think of them as our our fellow journeymen, right? Like we're on this this journey together to figure this thing out. And so I th- I think I speak on behalf of Clive when I say we're trying to figure out problems, and everyone's now the big buzz now is talking about driving care in the community and especially into the home. This is not meant to be just for Village MD and, and Walgreens. Uh, this is meant to be a care model that can be extended. Um, and so anything we do together and experiment with, you know, we're pretty open about um, because we want to see better outcomes for patients. We want to rethink the way healthcare happens in this country. Uh, that's how big it is. You know, I think in somewhere in the framing of the question, you said other, you know, folks out there, we're hoping to encourage other people to do same. and we want to know what they figure out, right so that we can we can work on it. like you know, we don't claim to have any special sauce necessarily other than we know how powerful pharmacy can be and that it's being underutilized in in the community setting. That's really what I when I think about this like at, at the from the highest level, I'm hoping that everything we do at the most granular level, we have to not only learn from it and then try to extend it but we have to share it and let me tell you we do get down in the weeds we have to get down into the weeds and and i think overall what i would say about it is just start with something that matters like solve a problem that matters and then just you know wash rinse repeat on it you know like bolt onto it what else can we be doing and and how can we do that better so i think that there is a lot that our pharmacists can do Uh, One of the things that you were talking, Clive, I was thinking about is like you need regulatory support as well. You need reimbursement. You need regulatory support. You need for those institutions to recognize that this is a better way of delivering care and then to get the support to get it done. Um, So I, I think, you know, sometimes. Certainly, Clive, you and I really focus on the clinical part of it. But the big picture here is that it doesn't happen in a vacuum there needs to not only be a, a reimbursement model, which now I feel like I've mentioned too many times, but you need regulatory support, you need institutional support, and, and you need the status quo to recognize that that doesn't work anymore to a certain extent. And what role can they play in it? I don't think of this as a zero sum. Does, this does not have to be a zero sum game. This should be like, hey, what role can I play in that? And those are the types of conversations we want to have with other providers, with healthcare systems, with payers, um, so I think all of this foundation is important. For a podcast entitled The Business of Healthcare, there is something unique about
1: the business of healthcare. And that is if, if we come up with something that's really good and helps our business, we publish it in papers for everybody in the world to read. Because we actually don't have any um interest in having a unique solution that can be applied to patients outside of our own. So if you think about it, I remember talking to somebody once and they'd come up with a different way to to kind of manage sepsis and sepsis is a leading cause of death in our hospitals. And so they wanted to know how they could patent this workflow so that they could be paid every time that somebody used it. And the answer was, that's not what we do in healthcare. We actually write a paper in the New England Medical Journal and share that workflow with everybody, so that people can actually apply it to their business, but not uniquely just to our business. So, and Kevin makes a, a really good point that that our goal is to identify a meaningful problem, add a, and, and show that there is a meaningful solution that we can drive a different result with, and then share that with everybody else in the same space hoping
3: that they have the same success. Absolutely. And I think one of the biggest regulatory moments was the ability to conduct telehealth. I remember running practices and interviewing pharmacists and there was no reimbursement and all of this was years ago. But the fact that that was a step forward and then maintaining those and not stepping back and uh, HIPAA laws and all the laws that are meant to protect and have good, good reason... I think, sometimes get in the way of of us being able to be nimble and 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 really get to that patient. So that, to me, is very exciting. And I, I love that you are both pushing for that. And uh, please continue to do so. A question I have, how do your pharmacists feel? I'm just talking with a few of them. Are they... I've heard a little bit of both just from friends. Now we have to give flu shots where you know, how what's their perception of the idea of being able to really broaden their scope? I'm just curious.
2: Yeah, I'm uh, the honest answer to that is our pharmacists right now have their hands full, right? and and they are concerned about um, the next incremental thing that they have to do. Um, you mentioned flu shots. Uh, it could be COVID shots, could be testing. What straw here is going to break this campus back? And so um, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because I'd like to just speak straight to it. It is our job, the leadership uh, at Walgreens, to make sure that we are creating the bandwidth so that our pharmacists can drive these higher value services. Okay. What do I mean by that? Let me be more specific because I think otherwise it's like one of those things that's said, but there's really no rubber on the road. We are going through a process right now where we are centralizing the fill dispensing of many medications so that our pharmacists don't have to do that. Okay, we're doing that across about two thousand stores right now with the intention to do it and more and more, and then to expand which medications we can do that for. When we do that, we that means that our pharmacists don't have to fill that med, and it it frees up bandwidth. Bureaucracy, the bureaucracy that they deal with, we're taking a really close look at how do they spend their time, the phone calls that they have to make, the pre authorizations, and I know that just as I say that word, Clyde will have a seizure. Um, (laughs) You know, remove like wick away that work that need not be done by a pharmacist. And then the technology, right? Like we have to get our technology right so that that's removing work and we're creating space. So this is really important. You know, before we can ask our pharmacist to add yet another thing, we have to make sure that we're creating space, that we're removing work that they don't have to do. Um, and, And what do I think that leads to? You know, when you look at what makes someone really happy in the workplace, you know first of all there has to be a certain amount of mission around it we have that in healthcare in in droves so that there's no problem there and then you know people really want to get good at what they do and they don't want barriers um so they they you know as much as possible don't micromanage them and let them do the work that they really that they went to pharmacy school for And so I think what we're really doing here is creating a better work environment, a place that people can show up and be excited about. You know, that's really what I think ultimately matters here is that by driving or or removing the work that um, really uh, doesn't add as much value as we'd like and replacing it with high value work, like all the things we're discussing, uh, ends up being a better work environment and people feel more connected to the types of outcomes they're driving.
3: Thank you for that. That's incredible. I've been wondering as I listen, Dr. Fields, um, any any addition to that? or?
1: No, I mean, the answer is, is that the primary care doctors are working really, really hard today and pharmacists are working really, really hard. And we need to have them working really, really hard on the things that only they can do. And that doesn't mean filling out pre-authorizations and and doing insurance verifications and figuring out what networks people can be referred to. And the sooner we get rid of all that work, none of which either me or Kevin went to medical school and excelled in, the better off everybody will be.
3: And I know there's there's work in legislation right now on pre-authorization and there's bills being considered. since Doctor Ban said you might uh, go crazy hearing pre-ops, I was curious if you have any any thoughts on any of that, or you want to elaborate on that at all? I- I've seen it.
1: So I have to tell you, pre-authorization was put in place as an economic measure to drive people either to no drug or to a different drug. Many times, working with our pharmacy colleagues, I don't think there's anybody better positioned to make what a decision about what the right drug is than the doctor and the pharmacist. And given that the economic motive is now through reimbursement or through outcome-based reimbursement, the economics have really been driven back to those two professionals. It feels like we're, we're at an inflection point where pre-authorizations are really losing their value. You know, It's funny, I used to, early in my career, have to get pre-authorizations for a mammogram, but they were never, ever turned down. So 100% of the authorization requests would go through. And at some point, you have to look at an insurance company or a government entity and say, if the answer is yes, 100% of the time, then why do you ask the question? And we have similar issues in the area of pre-authorization, where I may be asked to pre-authorize a $5 generic drug because it's being used in a way that whoever reviewed that script didn't believe was appropriate. If that decision has been made by a trained physician in partnership with a pharmacist, I'm just not sure anybody should be questioning those decisions.
3: I agree. That is fantastic to hear. Please keep putting pressure on that one.
0: At the end of every podcast, we like to ask some rapid fire questions. Today we were running short on time and decided to conclude with just one. What is the one big scary dream you have for yourself or for the industry? Let's see what Kevin and Clive have to say.
1: I think is this movement away from a hospital centric healthcare system somehow slows down because incumbents um, have more power and influence than they should. And so I'm convinced that healthcare should be driven or centered around a patient and their primary care doctors relate and their relationship with their primary care doctor and that teams should be built in larger concentric circles around that. So my biggest nightmare would be that the regulatory relief and, and the winds at our back Change in the direction that they blow, and we go back to a system that we know has failed us for fifty years and will fail us for as long as
2: it's used. I have to follow up to that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's easy. You got this.
2: <laughs> All right. Here's the thing. My biggest dream for us in the work that I did in Boston, we I worked for eight years in Italy, um, where my wife is from and where both of my children were born, and uh, I realized. Uh, that they focused a lot less on illness and they put a lot more into preventing and just being healthy. Okay. And that is a quantum mind shift change. I think we spend about 2.5% of our budget in the United States on prevention. But my dream is that we would imagine a day where people aren't employed because the machine is turning and burning. And this is probably just a reframing of what. Clive just said, but instead we're doing the basic things around what we know really help people live happier, healthier lives. Things like uh, getting enough sleep, uh, making sure that people have good food to eat, uh, that they're able to exercise and they're able to work to a certain extent on stress mitigation. I think all of these things um, may cure many of their chronic medical problems. Uh, and and maybe prevent a lot of those chronic medical pro- problems. So my dream is that one, that we will see a quantum shift in the way we think about healthcare towards something where we're, we're really just trying to live happier, healthier lives.
0: Thank you for listening to the Business of Primary Care podcast. We're honored that you've chosen to be a part of this community. In a world where traditional primary care must adapt, evolve, and change to thrive, we believe community, supportive resources, and education are essential. We are committed to finding answers and a better way forward. You can expect us to provide you with the latest news, trends, and best practices so that you can win in the business of primary care. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to our newsletter at businessofprimarycare.com and follow us on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe to get new episodes wherever you like to listen.